Welcome to Reimagining the Internet from the Initiative for Digital Public Infrastructure at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. We're talking to researchers, techies, activists, academics, and journalists about what's wrong with the internet and how to fix it. I'm your host, Ethan Zuckerman. Um, hey, everybody. Uh, welcome to Reimagining the Internet. I remain Ethan Zuckerman. I am thrilled to be here today with Dean Freeland. Uh, Dean is an associate journalism professor at UNC. He's principal researcher at UNC Center for Information Technology and Public Life. Um, he is someone that I push my students to as just one of the very leading methodologists on sort of understanding the relationship between social media and social change. Um, he's an expert on activism online, particularly on Twitter, particularly in communities around the movement for Black Lives. Uh, Dean, it's great to be with you. Hey, well, thank you for having me. So I wanted to have a conversation today a little bit about some recent research that you've done with Alice Marwick and Daniel Kreiss. Um, you have a paper, it came out in September of 2020, uh, a time where I'm sure uh, none of us were paying attention to anything other than what was coming out in Science Magazine. Um, but this is a paper called False Equivalencies, Online Activism from the Left to the Right. And you made this case that the left and right in the United States do really different things with Twitter and with online media from an activist point of view, that they actually have different targets and different goals. Can you talk a little bit about how, how left and right are using Twitter and other platforms for activism differently? Sure. Uh, the first thing I want to say is that the case we make in that paper comes with a pretty big asterisk, which is that we're, we're simultaneously trying to establish that the left and the right have very different patterns of activism and protests as reflected in the research literature. But the big asterisk is that uh, what we see in the research literature is reflective of the uh, attentions of the researchers. And there may be very other, other very uh, important patterns that are present that simply haven't been studied and so right so our that, our biases may be getting in the way of our sort of understanding of, of of how the left and the right are using those spaces yes and that's uh, that's always an issue but we uh you know we actually sketch out ways in which that's a particularly pressing issue for this particular question and for this particular topic so what the research literature says is that or the portrayal of the research literature gives is that the left primarily engages in a mode of activism that, that's come to be called hashtag activism. And that is where, uh, you know, first of all, it's a bit of a misnomer because it's not only online, but I think the term hashtag activism, once you understand it, is quite apt because the hashtag becomes a key signifier for whatever the movement is. And so the examples we give in the uh, paper are very, or should be very familiar to, to anyone who's been paying attention to the news over the past five to 10 years. So there's, you know, Black Lives Matter, um, there's Me Too, and there's Fight for 15. And so whether you're talking about people on Twitter, Facebook, or on other social media platforms or offline, these are signifiers that you're going to see. Uh, they're used widely in the media to refer to these um, movements. And so that really becomes the brand and kind of the rallying cry that folks who engage with these uh, embrace and that is uh, in some cases thrust upon them by um, by external uh, you know uh, commentators and then 
Uh, and so that's kind of how they, how, you know, the left does activism today. And the portrayal on the right is primarily of uh, something that's come to be called a right-wing media ecosystem. And so rather than kind of engaging in this sort of grassrootsy, uh, you know, hashtag activism, you have kind of more of an elite-driven process. Um, but then the right-wing media ecosystem kind of has a periphery and it kind of has like a central, um, you know, component. So the central component is, you know, a lot of the big players, folks that uh, people know the names of, Fox News, you know, Breitbart and the rest of those people who, uh, and outlets that command lots of attention. And then you've got fringe players that most people outside of the ecosystem will not be familiar with, um, where you know a lot of the stuff that's even too crazy for Fox uh, kind of percolates and doesn't really go anywhere. But occasionally, sometimes something will surface from this periphery, make it all the way to Fox during the Trump administration. In many cases, it got all the way to the president, uh, and he would repeat it either, either uh, in speeches or through his Twitter account. And so... Uh, that really is how information uh, diffused and how the right decided its priorities in terms of its activism through this right wing media ecosystem, which in many cases was, you know, uh, um, either elite driven or the elites would decide which aspects got to, you know, uh, the forefront there. Someone like Yohai Benkler, who's who's really made a lot of that case for that right wing ecosystem through a book like Network Propaganda, would probably go even further and and say that it's been incredibly successful in that not only does it steer Fox News, but often the New York Times will come along with Fox News for fear of not covering these issues that are getting so much discussion and probably out of a misguided sense of false equivalence. Um so is is this right wing strategy more successful than the left wing strategy? Are are they just different? Um, do we have any evidence of of the two sort of crossing paths? Do we see the left trying to do the mainstream media manipulation and and the right trying to do the offline activism around a single topic? Sure. Uh, so I think there there's some very uh, uh, important questions. Um, you know, about the success levels of each one. First of all, I think it's hard to, to measure um, success in absolute terms. So, I mean, I guess you could, um, actually, I, I suppose uh, Benkler and his colleagues attempt this a little bit, uh, but you could look at something like, you know, the total amount of, uh, of, of exposure, but you'd have to track that over time because, you know, a lot of this is very much event-driven. So just because at any given time, uh, one appears more prominent than the other, that doesn't mean that uh, that side would be more successful or should be considered more successful in general. So uh, I think uh, that's a, certainly an open question and one that really needs to be measured on a timescale of years rather than months or, or at any particular, within the context of any particular um, event. Um, I think in terms of the crossover, that's actually one thing we do address. And uh, those are areas in which re more research needs to be done. So if you consider something like, you know, right wing hashtag activism um, in presentations that I gave after the uh, paper came out, I sort of point out that during the Trump administration, there were a number of hashtags uh, that were basically boycott campaigns. So uh, good, good examples of this were boycott Netflix and boycott Budweiser, both of, both of which did you know, supposedly woke, quote unquote, things. And then it's like, oh, we got to cancel them uh, because they're doing things that we don't really like. Uh, there's been very little research done on those. Um, we don't know what, for example, whether they're uh, highly elite driven. We don't know, uh, you know how successful they were, how, how far they got and how much it actually affected the bottom lines of these country, of these uh, companies rather. And so uh, that those were just some anecdotes that I talked about. We know they exist. We don't know how widespread they were. 
And then, you know, the other piece of it is that, you know, if you think about me, um, right wing media ecosystem, uh, disinformation is a very key ingredient there. Right. And so this is one, um, you know, key theme of uh, uh, Bankler et al.'s book. And they talk about, you know, to try to answer the question why disinformation is more prevalent on the right uh, than on the left. And they really sort of peg it to mainstream media. They say, well, you know, mainstream media is a really good filter for this. Um, you know, they really kick out a lot of the, the uh, crazier stuff. They're not totally immune to it, but um, if you look at, at it in relative terms, they're pretty good at filtering out some of the sort of uh, patently um, baseless stuff that really has a, a lot of cachet on the right uh, side of the equation. So um, that is, uh, that's one sort of uh, theory as to why uh, that exists um, and to whatever extent that's, that's uh, valid. Um, I think that goes to explain a little bit why there is more uh, disinformation on the the right and what and how that becomes a strategy for activism on the right, um, whereas it's largely uh, or at least relatively issued uh, on the left. Although in some ways that's a it's sort of a comforting thought for those of us who who lean towards the left. Correct. I mean, we can sort of say, well, you know, we're willing to work in the shared reality of universally agreed upon facts, and you know, for the right to make their argument make sense. Um, they need to put forward their own fact pattern that you know reality doesn't appear to support. I mean, just in terms of self-congratulatory left-leaning, you know that, that's a, that's a nicely confirming way of looking at that. And, and let me make it clear: I'm I'm saying that as much to my friend Yochai as, as I am to you. Do sure. do we have evidence of left-wing disinfo? Do we have cases where we're seeing? folks out on the fringes of the left, on the on the left equivalent of the gateway pundits of the world, um, who are manufacturing facts and scenarios as well as interpretations? Yeah, so uh, this is something we, re- we address uh, in the paper. I mean, as you know, it's, it's kind of a, it kind of puts people in a weird position if you are on the left, because we're aware that confirmation bias exists. And, you know, at least for me, uh, I'm, you know, I'm well aware of the fact that like how it looks, right? Yes, you know. The other side is the one that engages in all that terrible disinformation and we're all great, you know, everything, we totally agree with the truth and we, you know, so, so yeah, it's a, it's a self-serving argument. That doesn't mean it's not true. Uh, but I, but, you know, as we point out uh, in the paper and, and as I pointed out in subsequent uh, presentations based on the paper, uh, if you're going to make that claim, I think, you know, people need to work extra hard to make sure that the empirics of that are as rock solid as they can possibly be uh, to counter those inevitable you know, uh, uh, observations and, uh, you know, they're absolutely true about the incentives and about confirmation bias and the rest of it. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, um, I think the evidence is there actually additional evidence has come out since, uh, the paper was published. Uh, when you look at the, a lot of disinformation that really swirled around the 2020 election, uh, which obviously didn't emerge until after the election had been called, uh, you know, that really supports that pattern of there being disproportionate amounts of disinformation on the right as compared to the left. Now, you ask specifically about, is there disinformation on the left? The answer to that question is yes. Uh, but, you know, when you're looking at it in an ideological asymmetry framework, uh, the lens is always comparative or relative. So relative to the left, the right has more. Uh, I'll give you a couple of examples of left-wing disinformation that we document in the piece. And so one of them is uh, there was um, a situation, uh, actually this, 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 uh, this example was documented in the uh, um, network uh, propaganda book 
Uh, and so during the 2016 election campaign, there was a, um, a, a lawsuit or an allegation uh, to the effect that Trump engaged in some kind of uh, child sex trafficking or something like this, right? So uh, there's been no evidence to support that this is actually true, but it, it sort of pops up every once in a while. It popped up during the summer of 2016 uh, after the book had been published. This is actually a really interesting empirical uh, note. I don't think anybody's explored this. So if anybody wants to do research on this, you definitely should. Uh, about a year ago, at the end of May 2020, um, Anonymous, the hacktivist collective, released a trove of documents that uh, basically purported to uh, uh, supply some evidence that Trump actually had been engaged in this in this uh, child sex trafficking uh, incident. Now, uh, this uh, information was completely ignored by mainstream media, but it w- but it really had a lot of uh, you know traction on Twitter. And I actually took a look at some of the accounts that were retweeting this stuff, and they weren't political accounts, right? These were accounts that were mostly into things like anime and K-pop and other sort of pop culture type topics. And then all of a sudden, uh, anonymous with the with the Trump, you know, child sex ac- uh, accusations pops up, and it's like, you know, my first thought is, well, is this an automated thing? Is this some kind of bot network? Or alternatively, could it be a situation in which people who are generally are not people on the left or people who don't like Trump, but who also generally don't pay that much attention to mainstream news, are now getting information from alternative uh, networks like anonymous? Uh, like other potential uh, 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 left-wing sources that don't hew to uh, very rigorous factual standards uh, and spread this stuff around? And is it that much more um, powerful for them because they're not uh, engaged in alternative uh, or with alternative um, news outlets that have those very uh, strong um, pro-fact biases? So uh, again, I don't know the answer to these questions. Um, It's just a a very interesting uh, empirical note at this point, but I do think it demonstrates the uh, potential for uh, there to be uh, left-wing uh, disinformation distribution networks, uh, although uh, all the evidence or most of the evidence that we have to date indicates that to whatever extent those networks exist, uh, they are less robust and manage to spread less disinformation than their equivalents on the right. So uh, this is a paper from, from 2020. It's it's coming out before the, the 2020 election. It's coming out really as a, a review of a lot of research within the field. It feels to me like there's been a little bit of a, of a seismic shift. I guess you can't have a little bit of a seismic shift. There's been a seismic shift in the space around mis- and disinformation uh, with what people are now calling the big lie, um, the insistence on winning the 2020 election. We're now at a point where more than 60% of Republicans um, believe that Biden is not a legitimate president. We've had 70% of House Republicans uh, vote to overturn or not confirm at least part of the 2020 election. How do we study this once such a central embrace of a conspiracy theory, something that near as we can tell has no factual basis, has actually become part of the Republican Party. Um, if one of our two parties is putting forward a false narrative, um, how do we how do we even talk about this? What does this mean for the sort of analysis that you're doing in this paper? Right, um, a great question, and I want to point out that this is not you know the first time that uh, a large uh, majority. Uh, of either one party or even perhaps the entire Washington establishment has, has uh, embraced something that is patently false, right? So, you know, you can go back to something like, you know, 
you can go back to something like uh, uh, the Gulf of Tonkin incident, you know, uh, from the 60s, right? That was that was based on something that was largely false or you don't have to go back that far, right? Go back to the Iraq war and WMD, right? That's, uh, you know, we're not even 20 years out from that. Uh, and that was something that, again, uh, totally false. Um, you know, you can you can make your argument about whether they knew or not. I mean, I don't think we'll ever know, uh, you know, who knew what at, what, at which time. Uh, certainly um, the actions taken once uh, it was revealed to be false, uh, at least to me, were not consistent with what you should do when you find out you've made a huge mistake. But, uh, you know, I think I, uh, what's really important to understand here is that this is not without precedent. Um, and so the fact that a lot of people believe this, I don't think is any kind of uh, obstruction to empirical study of this particular uh, phenomenon. Um, I think we should just keep on the way that we that we have been in terms of chronicling the appeal of, of um, disinformation content like this. It's interesting because in referring back to weapons of mass destruction and the Iraq war, going back to the Gulf of Tonkin incident, which we now know in retrospect was mostly constructed and certainly a, a large chunk of the administration knew that it was false. What you're almost pointing to is a presidential power to create alternative realities. That that part of what comes along with the presidency is the combination of a sufficiently powerful bully pulpit that you're almost able to sort of fork reality uh, as it goes. Uh, and, you know, suddenly we were living in a world in which Iraq had WMDs even if we know that Iraq did not have WMDs, we suddenly have to actually sort of deal with that universe. What what does that mean for Facebook? You know, Facebook is under enormous pressure to combat mis and disinformation. Um, should Facebook, should Twitter be taking down all of these posts where people are insisting that Trump won the 2020 election. How how should they be handling their responsibility for consensus reality? Or is that a space that they shouldn't be getting involved with at all? Well, you know, that's a great question and one that I've been asked by a number of reporters over the past, gosh, uh, nine months or so. And, you know, I think that the evidence on this point is quite clear, and that is that deplatforming works. So when you take somebody who has been a widely acknowledged spreader of mis- and disinformation off of that platform, the total amount of mis- and disinformation spread unsurprisingly decreases, yeah. right? And so there was a New York Times analysis a few weeks, months ago, times a flat circle, uh, you know, that uh, basically demonstrated when Trump... Uh, was deplatformed from Facebook and Twitter, the uh, degree or the um, distance that his uh, words spread uh, decreased by something like an order of magnitude. It was a huge, huge decrease. There, so there's a big there's a big confounding variable in that, right? Which is that he's also no longer president, right? And those two those two things happen almost simultaneously. Right. Yes. Yeah. So so he's he's no longer president, and he's also right. So so huge confounding variable. Um, you know, I think, but, uh, I, but one, one thing that's interesting about confounding variables is when you look at the factor decrease, you, you consider, you consider how the degree of impact that the confounding variable would have to have to completely eliminate the effect of the deplatforming. So, um, I think the effect size really sort of, uh, suggests 
that the deep platform probably and there are also other studies of deep platforming so yeah, yeah, yeah. he's not he's not our only example. We can go back to Alex Jones and the ways in which, you know, Infowars went from being sort of the the most important of the crazy far right and now has, you know, really lost traction to things like Gateway Pundit and some of the other things based in part on that deplatforming. So so terrible open-ended question that you may want to resist, but are there lessons learned from activist communities? around the use of these tools that we should be taking seriously as we're thinking about the next generation of these tools. Like people like me, whose lab is very actively trying to develop a next generation of tools, trying to put some other models out there. What are some of the takeaways that you and Charlton Meredith and sort of the other people that you've done such great work with on this have found about why these tools are so important for social change that we want to make sure that we preserve or that we pivot towards as we think about the next generation of the tools? Okay. Um, I will try my best to answer this question. Uh, and I'm going to do that by putting on my Marxist hat for a second. Please, go I mean, for I'm it. Not, you know, like, again, like, I'm going to be like a fake critical theorist for a minute. Like, I'm not, this is not what I studied in grad school. So this could totally be wrong, but I'm going to say it anyway. Because uh, I have tenure, and I'm gonna flex it. Um, so anyway, so basically, this actually refers. Um, I'm gonna draw on a question that was asked to me, um, you know, in a, in a seminar um, at some point over the last year. As a grad student was saying, well, you know, and this is a question that comes up a lot, and it has come up ever since social media became a big thing, which is, you know, why don't we? Why doesn't somebody just you know create some like super distributed system that uh, is not controlled by anybody, but anyone can get on it and all this, all these kinds of things. Basically the question of, can we create alternatives to the social media platforms that currently exist that would not have so many of the same problems because they're not driven by the imperatives of capitalism, et cetera, et cetera. Um, my feeling is the answer to that is probably no. Uh, and the reason has to do with the political economy of social media, right? Most people have no idea how much money it costs to run a global, globally distributed social media system, right? Twitter has nine figure users on there, right? Hundreds of millions of users. Facebook has a couple billion, right? So you need to, you know, you need to start getting out your accounting sheets, to try to figure out how much money this this costs, right? And so it's very difficult for me to uh, to for me to imagine a social media system of that scale that exists outside of a capitalist system. And so when you have a system, when you have a platform that exists within a capitalist system, then you get stuff like, oh, we have to let the disinformation people on there because that, you know, they drive engagement. They, they're at the top of the, uh, the reach charts, right? Or we have to let the white nationalists on here because they're the ones that are paying for the ads, right? Uh, they're the ones, uh, their content really um, keeps people in the rabbit hole for longer. So... In some ways, you have the, the very system that allows uh, activists to be able to engage in hashtag activism is also in many ways supported by uh, algorithmic rab rabbit holes that lead people to white nationalism and disinformation that prevents people from or that makes people think that vaccines are going to harm them uh, and these sorts of things. And so uh, from a political economy perspective, it's very difficult for me to understand how to separate those two things. Now, that having been said, if you want to do something small scale, you know, yeah, you can do that outside of a, of a, um, 
you know, capitalist system, you can get your old mesh network together and put together something that, that is, is very small. But one of the reasons why people love social media is its scale, right? So if you want to find your high school buddy from, you know, 30 years back, you can get on Facebook and probably do it, right? 60, you know, 60 to 70% of American adults are on Facebook. So you have a pretty good chance uh, of success with that. That's unprecedented uh, in human history, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Uh, and so that, that those, those network effects on a global level uh, are, I think, one of the major uh, attractions to these kinds of social media systems. Small-scale systems simply can't, you know, uh, do the same thing. And so uh, I, I, this is a question that I think is incredibly difficult to reconcile. Um, how do you maintain the advantages of a global social media platform while removing the incentives that the political economy itself creates? I don't know the answer to that question, uh, but I think that uh, it absolutely is a question worth asking uh, and one that uh, even if we can't completely separate the uh, platform from its native political economy rooted in capitalism, we at least should try to pare down those edges and get rid of the worst aspects of it if we possibly can. I, I don't know the answer either. And I'm very much feeling in your analysis like, you know, someone mucking around with mesh networks in very small communities, because that's certainly my hypothesis at the moment is that that's at the very least where we're going to have to start and sort of learn some of the community management and, and some of the, the scaling pieces of it. The, the last guest I had on the podcast is uh, Omar Wasso, and we went back in time a little bit to talk about Black Planet and to sort of talk about this moment in the early 2000s where it looked like people might have different homes online. You might have a home community where you were engaged in one type of speech. You might go hang out in other spaces and engage in different types of speech. Um, and that ends up feeling really quite foreign now in 2021, right? Like there's this sense of we're all on Twitter, we're all on Facebook, you know, why Why would we need that small subs community? The flip side is that that might actually be um, a much more positive, much more supportive view of the internet in which we had communities that were much closer to having common interests and the possibility of self-governance, right? It's very hard to imagine a world in which 3 billion Facebook users with no common language and no common identity are able to sort of step in and say, these should be the rules of the road. This is the conversation that we should have. But maybe it is the sort of thing where a black planet or an academic community or some smaller community could come in with a different vision. And, and so for me, that's the parallel track that I'm interested in. I am interested in, can we have spaces that are and rather than or? I don't want to get rid of Facebook. I love the ability to go back and find the high school friends. But I would be great to have a community where we as academics have our own space and our own rules of the road and so on and so forth. And I'm really interested to think about whether we could build those those parallel tracks. Do you think we still end up falling down in the face of scale? Is it is it just impossible to sort of beat doing this stuff at a universal scale? Yeah, well, so I, I'm going to disagree with you a little bit. I think that, the, that we do have parallel tracks, right? Facebook is its own thing. Twitter is something different, right? So, yeah. you know, people, uh, it's, it's been empirically documented that people um, use Facebook and Twitter uh, generally speaking, for different purposes, right? So uh, that's a parallel track, you know, 
Uh, Instagram is another parallel track, right? So there's a lot less politics on there because you can't post links, right? And so it's very much a visual culture. You know, Pinterest is something else. Snapchat is something else. I mean, Reddit is a a really interesting example. I mean, to me, like Reddit is like the second coming of the news group, right? So it's news groups for everybody. It's super easy to do because you can make your own or you can very easily. I mean, that that I think is is one of the the most um, that's the thing that really makes reminds me most of of my sort of high school experience with news groups, except it's way easier to do and way more functional. And so I think we do have some parallel uh, tracks. And so what I think makes that hard is that in many ways, the issue is that the uh, field is, is, is so crowded, right? We've got so many different things. For academics, you've got, you know, ResearchGate and Academia.edu, right? So there are, now, of course, the corporate aspect of them is, is another question entirely, but they exist. You know, there's some really, really great, you know, conversations that exist on uh, on ResearchGate that I've been able to benefit from. If you like to code, there's Stack Exchange. You know, I'm on, I'm on there all the time trying to get my coding questions answered. Uh, not have people be too mean to me. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, absolutely. I think that there are different tracks for different kinds of things. And so what that does, I think, is it really raises the bar for any additional track to come in to answer the question of what does this track do that existing tracks don't? Uh, and that's a question that gets harder and harder to answer every day because people are always coming out with new stuff. Everybody's trying to be the next whatever. You know, everybody's trying to you know, attention is the one limited resource. There's only 24 hours in a day and there's only so many, so many hours within that 24 hours that we have to devote to media consumption. And so if I'm thinking about it from my own perspective, if there is yet another platform vying for my attention, I'm going to be paying attention to that value proposition of what do I get out of it? Who do I get access to? How do I benefit from communicating on this platform. And, you know, uh, that's, I've already got my platform. So if I'm going to make room and space for that, uh, the answer to that has to be very intuitive and very convincing for me to be able to, to try to engage with that. Certainly on any long-term basis, even if I was inclined, even if somebody I knew, for example, was doing it and I was inclined to give them a little bit of you know, time at the beginning, uh, it was something I was, I, I was going to integrate into my long-term media diet. It would really have to supply uh, a tangible benefit for me that I can very easily, you know, understand. Yeah. No, Eli Pariser and I right now are pursuing this idea that um, the alternative social networks that have been the most traction so far are networks for people who've been deplatformed from elsewhere. Um, that um, it's basically people aren't joining these new networks unless essentially they've been thrown off and have to move the conversation to somewhere else. And so what, what do we learn from the deplatformed? And, uh, you know, the bad news about this, of course, is that a lot of the deplatformed are are people that we probably don't want to be taking the lessons from. Um, anyway, my friends, uh, Dean Freeland, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for making some time and, uh, glad to talk with you about this stuff. Reimagining the Internet is hosted by me, Ethan Zuckerman, and produced by Mike Sugarman, who also composed this music. Follow us at publicinfrastructure.org to learn more about what we're up to at the Initiative for Digital Public Infrastructure, and please subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening to it.